Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 9.10, African Societies in the Early Modern Period. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host Dana and this episode is the final episode of the Ancient Africa series. Last episode I talked about Africa's pre-colonial interactions with the wider world including the pre-Columbian contact theories. In this episode I'll be discussing African societies from the 16th to 19th centuries as well as some of the reasons for the transatlantic slave trade and the age of imperialism. Couple points of housekeeping. One, I am eternally grateful to every single listener to my podcast. Please don't get me wrong, but you got to stop DMing me and emailing me and asking me where I read things because I am telling you in these episodes where I read it, who said it, when they wrote it, like I'm giving you a bibliography as we go along. One day when I have the time and the resources and the patience and the technological know-how, I might set up like a website and post a reading list of all the places that I source my information because I definitely want to encourage people to read things and research things for themselves. Don't just depend on what I or anybody else says. But until that day comes, please do pay attention. Two, I want to, because I got another email I want to not apologize to any Somali people that I might have offended last episode. I checked my inbox and I was, uh, it was from someone that called himself a Jareer Slayer. I don't know what a Jareer is. I don't speak Somali and I never will at this point. Um, but yeah, the Jareer Slayer, he called me a monkey and said I was up to monkey business with this podcast. And all I have to say that is okay. Like, so I'm not bothered by being a Jareer, whatever that is. So you're better off taking your incredibly long email that I did not even finish reading and putting it in your slam book because I'm going to keep doing my monkey business because it's my monkey business. Ooh, ooh, ah, ah, click, click and all that. I'm black and I love it here. And if you don't, might I suggest Twilight? Chapter one, stages of empire. So back in the special episode, The Power of the Dollar, I used the phrase stages of empire and defined those stages as consolidation, expansion, and decline. I wasn't entirely sure where I'd come up with that idea, but I was pretty sure that I wasn't the first person to come up with it. So I did a little bit of research and it turns out that it is, as I thought, a well thought out theory with plenty of literature around it, which is the historian's dream. The economist David Murren breaks down the life cycle of an empire into five phases, regionalization, ascension to empire, maturity, overextension, and decline in legacy. I prefer my three to his five, but whatever. Regionalization and ascension to empire can be summarized into my consolidation phase, where a burgeoning political entity establishes dominance in matters of trade, war, and culture, in the areas directly adjacent to its ancestral homeland. For the Oyo Empire, this was the Gao city-state. For the Kingdom of Aksum, it was the capital of Aksum. For the Zulu Kingdom, the capitals moved around, but the heartland was called Zululand. As these regional hegemons won territories, they consolidated them via many means, 
In the Songhai Empire, it was via religion, specifically Islam. Askia Muhammad I, also known as Askia the Great, is remembered much more fondly in the historical record than his predecessor, Sunni Ali, mostly because he was thoroughly Muslim, whereas Sunni Ali's devotion to monotheism is and was then a subject of much debate. In order to consolidate the Songhai Empire, Askia Muhammad used religion as a unifying force, building many mosques and madrasas across the Songhai territories and converting many people to Islam in the process. For those that were already Muslim, having a Muslim ruler made the process of assimilation much easier to accommodate to and it quelled rebellion. Now, once an empire has consolidated its heartland, the expansionist period begins. This is where the burgeoning hegemon comes into conflict with other hegemons, uh, like its neighbors or just anybody that's out there on the take. And it's also where power within the kingdom or empire starts to become concentrated. The Congo kingdom is not referred to as an empire in the traditional sense because it consisted of several core provinces ruled by the Manikongo and then peripheral areas ruled by vassal chieftains, but it did undergo the same phases as an empire. In the expansionist period of the Congo kingdom, the kingdom underwent a centralization effort similar to the consolidation phase, but unlike in the consolidation phase, traditionally independent villages that had been ruled by separate kings became subjects and tributaries of the King of Congo. Initially, governorship of these subjugated villages was given to members of the royal family or other noble families. Governors served terms determined by the king, but they had the right to appoint their own clients to lower positions, all the way down to the villages who had their own locally chosen leadership. As centralization increased in the Congo Kingdom, the allied provinces gradually lost influence until their powers were only symbolic, manifested in Mabata, once a co-kingdom, but by 1620, simply known by the title Grandfather of the King of Congo. The high concentration of population around Mbazo Congo and its outskirts played a critical role in the centralization of Congo. The capital was a densely settled area in an otherwise sparsely populated region where rural population densities probably did not exceed five persons per square kilometer. Early Portuguese travelers described Mbazo Congo as a large city roughly the size of Lisbon in square kilometers and with a similar population to the Portuguese town of Evora by 1491. By the end of the 16th century, Congo's population was probably over half a million people in a core region of some 130,000 square kilometers. By the early 17th century, the city in its hinterland had a population of about 100,000 or nearly one out of every six inhabitants in the kingdom, according to baptismal statistics, compiled by a Jesuit priest in 1623. The kingdom as a whole numbered some 780,000. The King Congo kingdom's sphere of influence extended to neighboring kingdoms such as Ngoyo, Kakongo, Luango, Ndongo, and Matamba, the latter two located in what is now Angola. The population concentration of the Congo kingdom allowed resources, soldiers, and surplus foodstuffs to be readily available at the request of the king. This made the king overwhelmingly powerful and caused the kingdom to become highly centralized. The centralization of power is another key part of an expansionist phase. 
going to war with other nations or kingdoms with centralized leaders uh, happens more frequently rather in kingdoms with centralized leadership because the leader doesn't have to appease or confer with anyone else who has power, especially over the human resources. And it can also lead to more standardization in your military forces. Civil war is a well-known outcome of kingdoms and empires in their fragmentation phase or the phase of decline. A common characteristic of political life in the Kingdom of Congo was fierce competition over the secession. King Afonso I, known as Mvimba Nzinga, Nzinga Mbimba, Fonza Nzinga Mbimba, or Dom Afonso, is arguably the most famous and well-known king of Congo, and he had a legendary struggle for the throne where he had to fight a major battle with his half-brother that led to a factional rift that ultimately weakened the Congo kingdom and led to civil wars in future generations. Following Afonso's death in late 1542 or early 1543, factions formed behind uh, prominent men in the kingdom, such as Afonso's son, Pedro Ikanga Amivimba, and his grandson, Diogo Ikumi Amupudi, who ultimately overthrew Pedro in 1545. Although these factions placed themselves in the idiom of kinship, they were not formed strictly along hereditary lines since close kin were often in separate factions. The players included nobles holding appointive titles to provincial governorships, members of the royal council, and also officials in the now well-developed Catholic church hierarchy. King Diogo skillfully replaced or outmaneuvered his entrenched competitors after he was crowned in 1545. He faced a major conspiracy led by Pedro I, who had taken refuge in a church, and Diogo, in respect of the church's rules of asylum, allowed Pedro to remain in the church where he continued to plot against his uncle. However, Diogo did conduct an inquiry into the plot, the text of which was sent to Portugal in 1552 and gives us an excellent idea of the ways in which the plotters hoped to overthrow the king by enticing his supporters to abandon him. Pedro also used the church to make pleas to the Portuguese crown for military assistance, thereby involving a European power in domestic affairs of the kingdom, and several Portuguese liaisons were present in both Pedro and Diogo's courts, influencing them to make policies that favored Portuguese monopoly on trade. King Diogo's successor, Alfonso II, was killed by the Portuguese mere days after his secession, and an uprising occurred afterwards which killed his Portuguese-backed replacement. This allowed Alfonso II's half-brother, King Bernardo I, to be enthroned. But King Bernardo I was killed by the Yaga-Yaka invasion in 1567, and he was replaced by Enrique I, who was also killed while fighting slave raiders on the eastern borders of the Congo Kingdom. He had left the governance of the kingdom in the hands of his stepson, Alvaro Nimi Alukini Lua Mvimba, who was crowned as Alvaro I by common consent, according to Duarte Lopez, Congo's ambassador to Rome. In the midst of all this intrigue, the Portuguese had managed to monopolize the slave trade in Central Africa, taking over Congo fortresses at Moanda and on the islands of Sao Tome and Princet, exerting more authority over the land and the people on it. The fragmentation of the Congo Kingdom was at its worst during the Congo Civil War of 1665 to 1709, which was a war of secession between the rival houses of the Kingdom of Congo. The war raged throughout the middle of the 17th and 18th centuries, pitting partisans of the House of Kinlaza against the House of Kimpanzu. 
Numerous other factions entered the fray, claiming descent from one or both of the main parties, such as the Agua Rosada of Cabango and the De Silva of Soyo. By the end of the war, Congo's vaunted capital had been destroyed and many Bakongo people had been sold into the transatlantic slave trade, enriching the Portuguese and Dutch slave traders at the expense of the Kingdom of Congo. Without a center for trade and politics, the once powerful kingdom effectively ceased to exist for about two decades. After coming out victorious in the Civil War, King Pedro IV dedicated himself to reunifying Congo and making peace between the Kinlaza and Kampazu factions. This formula was similar to how the Tudors restored order after the English War of the Roses, giving certain families power bases in certain regions of England and Wales, and marrying a York princess to the Lancastrian victor of the war. I'm not going to call Henry VII a prince because he wasn't. According to Pedro's compromise agreement, a rival prince, Garcia IV, succeeded peacefully to the throne, which is what King Henry IV should have done after overthrowing Richard II instead of snubbing the powerful Mortimers and their York allies and setting off the whole War of the Roses in the first place. Although peace reigned in Congo for the next 50 or so years, the kingdom never regained its prominence economically or politically, and it slowly disintegrated into fiefdoms that recognized the King of Congo, but were not in any way truly under his control. By 1861, what remained of the Congo Kingdom officially became a vassal of the Kingdom of Portugal and uh, came under Portuguese laws, which is something King Alfonso I had rejected on the basis of interference with Congo sovereignty. And those laws, particularly laws over governing the slave trade and over land distribution and usage, those were implemented in the Congo Kingdom, Portuguese laws. At the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, the vassalage was officially recognized by the other governments of Europe and King Leopold II of Belgium was able to purchase much of the kingdom as his own personal fiefdom, the Congo Free State, which later became the Belgian Congo, a colony of the Kingdom of Belgium. In 1914, the Kingdom of Congo was officially abolished, but traditional rulers continued to use their pre-colonial titles and maintain their close alliances with European monarchies. Chapter 2, Direct and Indirect Colonization Historians generally distinguish two main varieties of colonialism. The first is settler colonialism, where farms, towns, cities, and trading posts were established by European settlers. And the second was exploitation colonialism, which was a purely extractive form of colonialism where very few Europeans settled in an area and the primary function of the colony was to develop economic exports for the European country. Sometimes these forms of colonialism overlapped or transformed into the other. For instance, the Spanish crown intended for their South American colonies to be purely extractive, but waves of European immigration into the South American colonies transformed them into settler colonies that eventually achieved independence from Spain. Contrary to what is popularly believed, the colonization of Africa did not really take off until the late 18th century. Most European monarchies and duchies were still embroiled in their own continental power struggles, particularly over religion. The 15th century in Europe is known as the century of religious wars with the French wars of religion, the English Reformation and civil wars, and the Thirty Years' War all taking place in the 1600s. 
During this time, it was mostly joint stock companies like the Dutch West India Company, the English Royal African Country, the British South Sea Company, and the Portuguese Casa de Guine that essentially crowdfunded their initial slave trading and colonizing efforts. The Casa de Guine was granted the first royal charter to conduct African trade in 1550, and this included the trade of slaves. People wishing to purchase slaves in Portugal had two sources, the Casa de Guine, or from slave merchants who had purchased their slaves through the Casa de Guine to sell as retail. There were up to 70 slave merchants in Lisbon by 1550. The Spanish created the Asiento de Negros, which was a monopoly contract between the Spanish crown and various merchants for the right to provide African slaves to colonies in the Spanish Americas. The Spanish Empire rarely engaged in the transatlantic slave trade directly from Africa itself, choosing instead to contract out the importation to foreign merchants from nations more prominent in that part of the world, typically the Portuguese, but after the 1648 Treaty of Munster, the Protestant Dutch gained access to the Asiento, and in 1713, the British were awarded the right to the Asiento in the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended the War of Spanish Secession. The British government then passed its rights to the South Sea Company. The British Asiento ended with the 1750 Treaty of Madrid between Great Britain and Spain after the War of Jenkins' Ear, which is known to the Spanish as the Guerra de Asiento, or War of the Asiento. So a lot of times the British will champion themselves as we abolished the slave trade because we were just so altruistic, but it had nothing to do with altruism. From 1713 to 1750, the British had the monopoly on slave trade to the Americas. And most of the Americas were Spanish. You're talking about New Spain. You're talking about pretty much all of South America and Central America and a lot of territories in the Caribbean as well. So the British had the monopoly on the slave trade for a little under 100 years, about 60, 70 years. And while they had that monopoly, they made a substantial amount of money. There's lots of literature about how the slave trade transformed the economy of Scotland in particular, and how the Scottish, especially the lowland Scottish, made millions and millions of dollars during that period where the British held the Asiento. When they lost that Asiento in 1750, it's no surprise that merely 10 years later, they abolished the uh, importation of African slaves and then by 1836 had abolished slavery altogether. They could no longer monopolize the trade, so they were no longer making all of this money and also the Industrial Revolution and beet sugar and a bunch of other economic factors made being a slaveholding society no longer in the British best economic interest. And that, not altruism, is the reason why the British abolished slavery. So don't ever let a British person play in your face. They're not altruistic. European governments mostly facilitated private companies' involvement in the slave trade and other trades, as well as piracy, for which England's Queen Elizabeth I was most famous. She sponsored men like Sir Francis Drake, who began his career as a slaver and then spent most of his life as a pirate operating under the protection of the English crown. 
England's North American colonies were also mostly started by private companies and individuals who operated under royal charters, such as the American 13 colonies that later became the first 13 states of America. These private companies established their own treaties and trade relationships with the natives and the European governments usually only got involved at the request of the colonists. This outcome is one of the many that led to what is called indirect colonization. Indirect colonization or indirect rule was a system of governments used by the British and others to control parts of their colonial empires, particularly in Africa and Asia, by making agreements with pre-existing indigenous power structures. Indirect rule was used by various colonial rulers, the French in Algeria and Tunisia, the Dutch in the East Indies, the Portuguese in Angola and Mozambique, and the Belgians in Rwanda and Burundi. These dependencies were often called protectorates or trucial states. In this system, the day-to-day government and administration of areas both small and large were left in the hands of traditional rulers whose prestige was acknowledged and protected by their colonial overlords. This is why many African countries maintained their local leadership and titles while ultimately swearing fealty to a European overlord and being subject to foreign laws and customs. The cost of indirect colonialism is that local rulers lose control over external affairs such as the decision to go to war. In India, Lord Lithlingo's decision to have India declare a war on Germany without consulting the Indian National Congress is what led to the Quit India movement. Local rulers also lose control over communications and taxation, and instead a small number of European advisors effectively oversee government of large numbers of people spread out through extensive areas. Indirect colonialism is largely associated with the British Empire, but some British colonies were ruled directly by the colonial office in London, like the Caribbean colonies, while others were ruled indirectly through local rulers who were then supervised behind the scenes by British advisors. Those ruled indirectly by advisors were called protectorates rather than colonies. In 1890, Zanzibar became a protectorate of Britain, and the British Prime Minister Robert Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, explained why he thought protectorates were most favorable. The condition of a protected dependency is more acceptable to the half-civilized races and more suitable for them than direct dominion. It is cheaper, simpler, less wounding to their self-esteem, gives them more career as public official, and spares unnecessary contact with the white man. The princely states of India were also ruled directly, with the Indian territories ruled indirectly experiencing similar effects to those in Africa that experience indirect rule. The same went for many of the West African holdings of the British and French empires. What he didn't say was that the reason why indirect colonization was cheaper was because it meant maximum resource extraction without having to incorporate native peoples into the British population or giving them the rights expected of British citizens. He kind of says that when he says less contact with white men, what he is kind of saying is that like they don't want to interact with us and we don't want to have to treat them like citizens. Two, this was an effective strategy when the native peoples resisted more direct means of colonization, aka we couldn't beat them, so we joined them, and then we helped them exploit the local populace. And this created a class of indigenous peoples who had Western mindsets who would usually screw over their own people to make an extra buck, called compradors. 
In Africa, the ideological underpinnings as well as the practical application of indirect rule in Uganda and Nigeria is particularly attributed to the work of one Sir Frederick Lugard, the High Commissioner of the Protectorate of Northern Nigeria from 1899 to 1906. After the British conquered the Sokogoro Caliphate in the early 1900s, Lugar instituted a system whereby external military and tax control was operated by the British, while most every other aspect of life was left to local pre-conquest indigenous aristocracies who may have sided with the British during or after their conquest. This practical problem was referred to as the native problem by Mahmoud Mandani in his work, Citizen and Subject. And Lugard further contributed to the Library of Scholarship on Colonial Administration in his treatise, The Dual Mandate in British Tropical Africa. According to Lugard, indirect rule was a political doctrine which held that the Europeans and Africans were culturally different to the extent that Africans needed to be ruled through their own institutions. To achieve this objective, chiefs and or royalty continued to exercise their traditional powers over their subjects. Chiefs were appointed for areas with no chiefs, which appointed by Europeans, and aspects of traditional government repugnant to European ideas of what constituted government were modified, e.g. the abolition of human sacrifice, participation of women in politics and warfare, and any religious ideas that did not reasonably comport to European standards of, of decency and civilization. That's why when who was it, Rwanda overturned the sodomy laws, they said those were British imports, because they were. The British were famously not interested in paying for colonial administration and certainly not willing to invest in their colonies and protectorates, although they were extremely interested in economically benefiting from their new colonies. Thus, the British were convinced that it would be cheaper to use these traditional institutions to achieve the same objectives. The nature and operation of indirect rule in northern Nigeria amplified those contentions. When Lugard and his men conquered the Sokoto Caliphate of northern Nigeria, his limited resources in terms of men and money made it impracticable, impra yeah, impracticable for him to rule the vast territory. Fortunately for him, however, the Sokoto Caliphate already possessed a highly developed and efficient system of administration headed by its emirs with the Sultan of Sokoto as the supreme head. The hierarchical nature of the political structure was ideal for the system of indirect rule because the British could control the emirs and the emirs could in then, turn, then in turn control their people. Direct colonial rule is a form of colonialism that involves the establishment of a centralized foreign authority within a territory, which is then run by colonial officials. According to Michael W. Doyle of Harvard University, in a system of direct rule, the native population is excluded from all but the lowest levels of colonial government. Ugandan academic Mahmoud Mamdani classifies direct rule as centralized despotism, a system where natives were not considered citizens. It is worth noting, again, that in British indirectly rule protectorates such as in Kenya and India, the native-born populations were not considered British citizens then either. As it was indirectly ruled, indirectly ruled colonies, European laws and customs were imported and supplanted traditional power structures and laws, such as Portuguese land ownership laws supplanting Congo collectivist land use, or the English importation of the sodomy laws in Central Africa. Jus van Vollenhoven, 
Governor General of French West Africa from 1917 to 1918, described the role of the traditional chiefs by saying, his functions were reduced to that of a mouthpiece for orders emanating from the outside. The chiefs have no power of their own of any kind. There are not two authorities in the circle, the French authority and the native authority. There is only one. The chiefs were therefore ineffective and eventually not highly regarded by the indigenous population. But in resistance, there were instances where people under direct colonial rule secretly elected a real chief in order to retain traditional rights and customs. Direct rule deliberately removed traditional power structures in order to implement uniformity across a region. The desire for regional homogeneity was the driving force behind the French colonial doctrine of assimilation. The French style of colonialism stemmed from the idea that the French Republic was the universal guarantor of universal equality. As part of a civilizing mission, the European principles of equality were translated into legislation abroad. For the French colonies, this meant the enforcement of the French penal code, the right to send a representative to parliament, and the imposition of tariff laws as a form of economic assimilation. Requiring natives to assimilate in these and other ways created a ubiquitous European-style identity that made no attempt to protect native identities. Indigenous people living in colonized societies were obliged to obey European laws and customs or be deemed uncivilized and denied access to European rights. Both direct, indirect, and indirect rule have persistent long-term effects on the success of former colonies. Dr. Lakshmi Iyer of Harvard Business School conducted research to determine the impact that the type of colonial rule can have on a region, specifically looking at post-colonial India, where both systems were present under British rule. Iyer's findings suggest that regions which had previously been ruled indirectly were generally better governed and more capable of establishing effective institutions post-colonialism than areas that were under direct British rule. In the modern post-colonial period, areas formerly ruled directly by the British perform worse economically and have significantly less access to various public goods, such as healthcare, public infrastructure, and education versus those that were ruled indirectly. In my master's thesis, I also tackled the subject of indirect versus direct colonial rule from an economic aspect. I did a comparative analysis on the levels of FDI or foreign direct investment in former colonies around the world that were either directly or indirectly ruled in order to narrow down which aspects of colonialism most contributed to the present economic state of these countries. Instead of focusing solely on markers like FDI and GDP, I also examined the fiscal and monetary practices of former colonies, such as Nigeria's federal system and the ways that the present Nigerian government allocates resources and invests in the country's infrastructure. While I did have to concede that some of these factors could not be tied to colonialism, such as ethnic conflicts between the Igbo and others, I concluded that while indirect colonization does tend to produce former colonies that are more capable of self-sufficiency and economic growth, such as the case of India's economic uh, growth post-colonialism, the manner of colonialism produced the same outcomes that plague every former colony. Heavy debts to former colonial powers in the form of development aid, brain drain, and cultural death. This is because both indirect and direct colonialism is extractive by nature and the European nations pointedly refuse to invest in infrastructure in the colonies to develop these colonies. 
And then they sabotaged what little infrastructure that they had built when they left, like the British and the French destroying railroads in Nigeria and Cameroon and all across French West Africa when these colonies uh, declared independence. By not being able to tax the multinationals that extract wealth from these countries, not having the educated workforce necessary to run their productive engines because they've all moved to the European country for more economic opportunities, and either being blocked by their former colonial overlords when they do seek to build their own infrastructure or being forced by concessions of development loans into spending most of their GDP paying back those loans instead of actually developing their economies, all former colonies are pretty much hobbled in the process of growing economically. Mahmoud Mandani, whose book Citizens in Subject, Contemporary Africa and the Legacy of Colonialism, was cited extensively in my thesis, claims that the two types of rule were each uh, sides of the same coin. He explains that colonists did not exclusively use one system or another. Instead, European powers divided regions along rural and urban lines and instituted separate systems of government in each area. Mamdani refers to the formal division of rural, rural, I can't say that word, and urban natives by colonizers as the bifurcated state. Urban areas were ruled directly by the colonizers under a imported system of European law, which did not recognize the validity of native institutions. In contrast, rural populations were ruled indirectly by customary and traditional law and were therefore subordinate to the civilized urban citizenry. Rural inhabitants were viewed as uncivilized subjects and were deemed unfit to receive the benefits of citizenship. The rural subjects, Mamdani observed, had only a modicum of civil rights and were entirely excluded from all political rights. When people talk about the British system of divide and conquer, which was never an explicitly stated policy, the bifurcated state is what they're referring to. As I explained in my special episode on Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill stated that the British East African government needed to stress to the urbanized Kenyans that the Mama rebels did not represent indigenous Kenyans fighting an oppressive white government, but rather they needed to control the narrative and change the Mama rebellion into a unsophisticated rural element that resented the urbanized Kenyans. And to that effect, They went so far as to lift some of the restrictions on black Kenyans that were living in urban areas, giving them a few more rights so that they would be more inclined to protect those few rights and privileges rather than lose everything by siding with the rural Kikuyu rebels. Mamdani argues that the current issues in post-colonial states are the result of colonial, colonial government partition rather than simply poor governance as others have claimed. Current systems in Africa and elsewhere are riddled with an institutional legacy that reinforces a divided society. Using the examples of South Africa and Uganda, Mamdani observed that rather than doing away with the bifurcated model of rule, post-colonial regimes have reproduced it. Although he uses only two specific examples, Mamdani maintains that these countries are simply paradigms representing the broad institutional legacy colonialism has left on the world. He argues that modern states have only accomplished deracialization and not democratization following their independence from colonial rule. Instead of pursuing efforts to link their fractured society, 
centralized control of the government stayed in urban areas and reform focused on reorganizing the bifurcated power forged under colonialism. Native authorities that operated under indirect rule have not been brought into the mainstream reformation process. Instead, development has been enforced on the rural peasantry. In order to achieve autonomy, successful democratization, and good governance, Mamdani believes that states must overcome their fundamental schisms, urban versus rural, customary versus modern, and participation versus representation. Chapter 3, The Technological Question. When people talk about the Colombian exchange and the Amerindian genocide and replacement by European settlers and African slaves, the main culprit is usually Europeans introducing Eurasian diseases such as smallpox to an Amerindian population that had no immunity or resistance to it. When people talk about the transatlantic and Indian Ocean slave trades and the colonization of Africa, the two main culprits are usually pointed out being that the Europeans had superior weapons and that the Africans were willingly selling other Africans to Europeans in exchange for European weapons. These are all valid catalysts, but it is important to examine the wider landscape of African politics during the age of imperialism. Across the continent, several once powerful political entities, kingdoms, and empires were in a state of fragmentation. For example, at its height, the Sokoto Caliphate of northern Nigeria once linked over 30 different emirates and 10 to 20 million people, making it the most powerful state in the region, one of the most powerful states in West African history, and one of the most significant empires in Ghana in the 19th century, I mean, in Africa, rather, in the 19th century. It was also a large slaveholding society with upwards of 2 million slaves from across Western and Central Africa, rivaling the United States in numbers of slaves by the mid-19th century. However, ongoing tensions with the Fulana ruling class and the neighboring Haza peoples provided a right field for would-be colonial empires to spread dissension. Following the Berlin Conference, the British had expanded into southern Nigeria and by 1901 had begun to move into the Sokoto Caliphate while simultaneous German efforts occurred in Cameroon. So basically, the British were coming up from the south, the Germans were coming down from the north, and the Sokoto Caliphate, with its spread out organizational structure, was at risk. British General Frederick Lugard used rivalries between many of the emirs in the south and the central Sokoto administration to prevent any defense as he worked toward the capital while the Germans conquered the very powerful Adamawa Emirate. As the British approached the city of Sokoto, the new Sultan, Muhammadu Atiru I, Atahiru I, along with Muhammad bin Anabwani, organized a quick defense of the city and brought the advancing and fought the advancing British-led forces. The British force quickly won, sending Atahiru I and thousands of his followers on a modest hijra into Hazaland. The now shattered caliphate was then partitioned by Great Britain and Germany when on March 13, 1903, at the Grand Market Square of Sokoto, the last vizier of the caliphate officially conceded to British rule and the British appointed Muhammadu Atahiru II as the new caliph. Frederick Lugard abolished the caliphate, but retained the title Sultan as a symbolic position in the newly organized Northern Nigeria Protectorate. This remnant became known as Sokoto Sultanate Council. In June 1903, the British defeated the remaining forces of Atuhira I in an engagement where he was killed in action. And by 1906, 
Fulani and Haza armed resistance to British rule had ended. Now, did technological advantage lead to the defeat and demise of the Sokoto Sultanate? No, it didn't. Lack of technological investment is what led to the defeat and demise of the Sokoto Sultanate. Europeans had been trading guns and cannons to Africans in exchange for slaves, gold, ivory, and other goods since about the 15th century. And by the 19th century, most armies in the world were on pretty equal footing when it came to weaponry and tactics. The Sokoto Caliphate, also being a Islamic caliphate, had access to Ottoman weaponry. And for those who do know and those who don't know, Mehmed II really popularized the use of artillery and cannons in warfare when he bought when he had a super cannon made that brought down the walls of Constantinople in 15 uh 1452 or 14 eh, it happened in the 1400s anyway like i was saying by the 19th century most of the armies of the world were on pretty equal footing when it came to weaponry, and Africans were not an exception to that. The Dahomey had weapons, the Ashanti had modern weaponry. It was just it wasn't just like, oh, they were just so overwhelmed by guns because they had never experienced them before. In the 121300s, the sultanates in Morocco were using arquebusiers. That didn't spread across the Sahara and down into both East and West Africa, the use of arquebusiers and muskets and rifles. So they had the stuff. The Sokoto Caliphate had had decades of economic growth throughout the region, and they had significant trade and control over the trans-Saharan trade routes. So why were the British able to quickly dispatch the Sokoto Caliphate? Well... On top of the fact that the British were capitalizing on internal divisions, the Caliphate was a major slaveholding society. Something like half of the people in the Caliphate were enslaved or formerly enslaved. Because of the administrative structure of the Caliphate, which was largely organized around a number of mostly independent sultanates pledging allegiance to the Sultan of Sokoto, the emirs had their own armies, which made Sokoto a feudal state. In a feudal state, you have to call your banners, for those who are into Game of Thrones, you call your banners, they bring their armies, but you don't control those armies. You're not feeding them, you're not keeping up their horses, you're not arming them. They just, they're swearing fealty. It's a lot of dependence on trust, whereas in more centralized militaries like Great Britain and Germany had at that time, one person is directing the course of everything. Different emirs and different sultanates had different priorities. And what they did with their militaries, their militias, their money was really their business. And the sultan in Sokoto couldn't really control that. So in Adamawa, uh, they were overwhelmed, overwhelmed by artillery. They still were depending on walled cities in this part of the Sokoto Caliphate, which is now Cameroon. And of course, walled cities hadn't really been a good means of defense since Constantinople had fell. 
So they were dispatched quickly, not because they weren't aware of the weaponry. Again, not only had Africans been receiving uh, weapons from the Europeans since about 1400s, but they also had access to Ottoman weapons, which were at that time the best in the world, and also Chinese weapons and Indian weapons. And they just chose not to spend the money on it, I guess. Also in slaveholding societies, there tends not to be a whole lot of other types of infrastructure. It's If it's a slaveholding society, it's usually an agricultural society. Agricultural societies need lots of land. One person owns a whole bunch of land and the majority of the people working that land aren't paid for their efforts because they're slaves, which keeps the tax base a little bit smaller as well. You need a larger tax base in order to facilitate an industrialized nation. Slaves still build them in the case of like the Arabian quarter and all of those uh, emirates and stuff like that, that are using slave labor to build their skyscrapers and their football stadiums and whatnot. But you can't sustain an industrialized economy on slave labor, just slave-like if the United States is any indication. Great Britain and Germany, like I said, they essentialized their governments and done away with feudal systems over hundreds of years. So the British units were equipped in the same fashion from regiment to regiment, whereas in the Emirates, you might have an Emirate that's smaller, but better equipped, better trained. And then you might have one that's larger, but sloppily trained. Then you might have one that utilizes slave labor. And if I'm a slave and you putting me on a camel and putting a rifle and a bayonet in my hands and you're like, go fight the British and the British got machine guns and cannon fire, I don't even like you. I'm not getting paid for this. I'm throwing down my weapon and I'm running over to the other side or I'm just getting the hell out of Dodge. And that's how the Sokoto Caliphate fell. Great Britain also had a larger middle class than the slaveholding Sokoto Sultanate. And as a result, individuals like Sir Lugar were able to raise heavily armed private militias for the purposes of military adventurism, which the middle class investors could profit from without having to go and fight themselves. And this was very, very popular in the Victorian era up until they went to Afghanistan, where those privately funded militias, they thought that they were going to control the trading routes in Afghanistan and also cut off the Russians' access to India. And uh, there was a bunch of reasons why they went in, the British went into Afghanistan. None of them mattered, though, because they got slaughtered to the very last man in classic Afghan fashion. Conversely, in the Sokoto Sultanate, men were bound to the emir and had no recourse for profiting from warfare themselves unless they captured slaves in a raid and then were given lands and titles. Because the emir didn't control, uh, the, each emir controlled their own militias and war materials, the sultan could not control the military forces of the sultanate in the same way that the British prime minister could, nor could the sultan ensure that the forces were all equipped equally. When the British in the Sokoto and the Germans in the Sokoto fought in the Adamawa Wars, the Sokoto generals were devastated by British machine guns and German artillery, like I said. Units in the Emirate of Adamawa were furnished with Ottoman-made artillery, but units in Kanem Bornu and the Gwandu Emirate fought with very little artillery and outdated bayonet rifles. 
Much like technological stagnation contributed greatly to the colonization of Africa, it also still contributes greatly to the neo-colonization of Africa, where nations are de facto independent, but cannot or are not able to sustain themselves from their own resources because Euro-American multinationals siphon the raw material wealth of Africa without just compensation in the form of taxes or fair wages. And so for those who don't know what I mean by I say Euro-American, Canada or rather Canadian mining corporations own 76% of all the mines in Africa and roughly half of all the mines in South America. 76% of all the mines in Africa are owned by a Canadian mining company. And I guarantee you that none of them pay taxes to the African country that they are operating in because the way that these agreements are worked out when you take out IMF loans, you have to slash your investments in your domestic economy. That means healthcare, that means in roads, that means schools. And you spend the majority of your GDP paying back those loans and also changing your laws so that multinationals can come and extract resources from your country without having to pay you taxes. African firms are usually blocked from acquiring the kind of technology and infrastructure needed to compete with these Western multinationals. And African governments are, like I said, bondholders and debt traps to the IMF. If you look at what they call the Washington concessions, which most of them are still in force. For instance, Angola had to give up its controlling interest in its diamond mines in 2019 in order to have a loan for less than a billion, less than a billion. Angola's diamond mines bring in several billions per year, but they gave up their controlling interest in their national diamond mine corporation for less than a billion. And as another concession was that they had to basically give up a cooperative agreement that they had with China to develop modern hospitals in Angolan cities. All that for not even half a billion. So these African countries are also not able to subsidize the growth of domestic industries or financing education and health programs that would entice educated Africans to remain in their native lands to live and work, which would then contribute to the tax base. This concludes the Ancient Africa series. I hope that this was as illuminating an experience for you as it has been for me. The next series is going to be called A History of Resistance, and it is about the history of slave and peasant revolts around the world. Join me next time for more Musings on History.